Let me go ahead and open us with a word of prayer, then I'll introduce Dr. Dixon. Some of you already know who he is, but we are delighted to have him back with us. But let's ask the Lord's blessing on this evening. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of evangelism. We thank you, Lord, for scholars and for pastors and for teachers. And we thank you for John Dixon and his wife, Buff, who have come all the way to us from Sydney, Australia, to be with us this evening in Charleston. We pray that you would just settle your Holy Spirit on this gathering, that if there are those here that are questioning or have doubts or are skeptical, we pray, Lord, that they might have some of the answers that they are seeking to have answered, answered tonight. I pray, Lord, for John Dixon, that you would just bless him, give him every spiritual benediction and grace that is necessary, that he may speak to us with power and with truth. So come, Lord, and be our guest this evening, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, many of you heard John Dixon. He was here at St. Philip's this past week. He was here a year ago, came to us by way of the Anglican Leadership Institute. And um, I've been a fan of John for a number of years and um, uh, extended the invitation for him to come back. And he agreed to do so. And uh, he brought his wife, Buff, along. Uh, Buff, you want to just wave your hand there for a moment? She's there in the back. And um, uh, it's funny, I, she asked me, what, what day is it today? I mean, they've come the whole way from Australia, and it's very confusing. And, and John has been speaking all over town here at St. Phillips. Uh, he led the rector's forum. He preached on Sunday. He was at Porter Gowd School for a chapel service yesterday and led the senior high Bible study, a packed group of young people today. He was... Um, just wildly accepted by the faculty out there. He's met with faculty at the College of Charleston, and now he's here to speak to us tonight. And if you like what you hear, come back because he's with us for one more Sunday. And so we are just delighted to have him. Uh, John Dixon has more talent in one person uh, than you can possibly imagine. Uh, he started off uh, playing in a Christian rock band uh, he is an academic. He got his PhD. He was a professor at Macquarie University. He is now a professor at Sydney University. He is on the faculty visiting a research scholar at Oxford University in England. Um, he does it all. He's a clergyman in the um, Anglican Church, ordained in the Diocese of Sydney. He has pastored a congregation. He's done it all. It's just too much talent in one individual. I, I got to confess that I'm pea green with envy. Um, but he is also a wonderful Christian apologist and defender of the faith, and we are absolutely delighted to have him with us this evening. So please give a warm St. Phil's welcome to Dr. John Dixon. I think Buff and I have decided that you Americans are just too polite for your own health, okay? So I, I appreciate that but it, it does seem a little bit embarrassing, a little bit over the top, but I'll just accept it. I just wish that there were, there were some Australians here to hear that. You can see my topic. It raises so many questions, I'm sure, and uh, I'm sure I will raise questions uh, as much as answer them tonight, but I want to begin with a completely untrue story, and it's hopefully the only untrue thing I'll say tonight, you may have heard uh, of those four people in a plane that lost power to its engines and started careering toward the ground, and the pilot came out and said, look, we've got a problem. There are only three parachutes, and it's my plane, my parachutes. The others thought that seemed reasonable enough, so we strapped it on 
and jumped out to safety. Left on the plane were a minister of religion, a backpacker just making her way around the world, and a brilliant professor. And the professor shot straight up and said, I'm one of the greatest minds in the world. I must survive. And they all thought that was pretty reasonable. So he grabbed the parachute, strapped it on, jumped out. The clergyman started to say to the backpacker, I've lived a long life. I know where I'm going. You take the last parachute. And she stopped him and said, no, it's okay. That brilliant professor, he just jumped out with my backpack strapped on. <laughs> okay. That's more of that American politeness to laugh so much at that. But anyway, thank you. Uh, completely untrue, but it illustrates something that is true. It's possible to assume you have the real thing when in fact you have a poor substitute, which is a particular problem jumping out of an aircraft at 30,000 feet with nothing but a PhD and a backpack. But it's a problem when it comes to all sorts of important life issues to assume you've got the real thing. And it's certainly true when it comes to the Christian faith. It's true in my country. I can assume it's true here. There are people who assume they've embraced real Christianity, but on closer inspection, they themselves will admit it probably wasn't the real thing. And equally, and especially where I come from, there are people who have dismissed what they thought was real Christianity, and on closer inspection realized Actually, they dismissed a poor substitute. And so what I want to do in our time together uh, is a kind of safety check to check whether the Christianity we have received or rejected is the real thing, the parachute instead of the backpack. And that instantly raises the question, which Christianity? Which Christianity? Uh, you know, we're here in Anglican churches at the... Episcopalian Anglican Christianity? Is it Baptist Christianity? Is it Pentecostal Christianity? Catholic Christianity? Which Christianity? Uh, this is often thrown at me. In fact, just recently on Facebook, one of my uh, many atheist friends on Facebook, Facebook, uh, I say friends in inverted commas, um, they don't always like me, uh, came out right out and, and basically said, you Christians can't even work out what you believe. So many denominations, so many experts in the Christian faith get back to me when you've decided you believe something. Because until then, it's all so diverse. Now, it's a fair criticism. It's a fair criticism. Christians have disagreed on loads of stuff through the years, and I hardly need to rehearse those disagreements, which sometimes came to fisticuffs. But I tried to reply to this atheist friend that there is a way of summarizing Christianity in a way that all Christians agree on that all brands agree on. There is one three-stanza, 83-word summary of the Christian faith which all the brands sign off on. It's called the Apostles' Creed. It will be no news to the good Anglicans in the building or the Catholics or the Lutherans or whatever, uh, but if you're not used to church, you may have never heard of the Apostles' Creed. It's three stanzas, 83 words in the original language, uh, that summarize the Christian faith. And all the brands agree on it, including even Hillsong. I, I don't mean even Hillsong, but um, Hillsong's that, that mega church that produces much of the contemporary worship music in the world today. And they actually started saying and singing the Apostles' Creed and even set the Apostles' Creed to music 
in a song that back in 2015 went to number one in Indonesia. I have no idea how the most populous Muslim country in the world thought this was a really cool idea, but they did. everyone's cup of tea. Okay, I'll give you that. But extraordinary that there is a fundamental agreement on these 83 words. And it's quite a core summarized in the Apostles' Creed. And I want to walk through it tonight, not line by line, but section by section, and make the points that seem to me to be the three core things all the brands agree is the Christian faith. The reality of God, the history of Jesus, and the life of the Spirit. I'm going to walk through in that order. I hope that sounds like a reasonable plan. Beginning with the reality of God. Stanza one is brief, and if you blink, you miss it, but it's profound. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. Okay, that just sounds like theology 101. Of course Christians believe that. But it's actually profound and weird in large historical context. Obviously, the words heaven and earth recall Genesis 1. It's deliberately recalling the opening line of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Apostles' Creed which began to be devised in the century immediately after Jesus, uh, echoes that theme of God making heaven and earth. Heaven and earth just means everything. I mean, if you say heaven and earth, there's, there's nothing left, right? There's nothing beyond heaven and earth. It just means God made the universe. We might say the universe, which I know sounds like, like religion 101, but it is philosophical dynamite, and it can produce a private revolution in your life. Let me try and explain. Philosophically, this means God is the source of the universe, not part of it. Most of the gods of most of the religions throughout the history of the world were super beings in the universe, not the source of the universe. But uh, the Apostles' Creed makes clear that God is the source of heaven and earth, not part of the heaven and earth. Um, by definition, the source of time and space cannot be part of time and space. Right? It's sort of obvious. God cannot be like the fairies at the bottom of the garden, or Zeus in the Greek pantheon, or Thor, or leprechauns, or Yeti. That, is that still a thing? You know, super beings in the creation. If, if those entities exist, they exist as part of creation, not as the source of creation. When Christians say they believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, they are saying this is the source of time and space, not part of time and space. It would be a mistake to confuse God with a kind of magic wardrobe hidden in the house of creation somewhere. And if you look hard enough in enough rooms with the right instruments, you should be able to find the wardrobe. 
No, that's not what God is like. That's what Thor is meant to be like. That's what the fairies at the bottom of the garden are like. But God is more like the architect of the house in the first place. You don't find the architect in the house. You can't rush through the house and go up to the attic and go down to the wine cellar and into the cupboard and go, I can't see the architect, therefore no architect. All the while missing the more profound point that you are in a house with hallways and doors and windows that work in the first place. God is the source of all things and therefore not part of it. Which I know sounds a little bit sort of philosophical or maybe it should just stay in the university, but its payoff to life is profound. Because it means life, creation itself, is a gift. This line that everything in heaven and earth has come from a father actually turns matter, the stuff of each other, into gifts of love from an eternal father. Now this is stressed all the way through the Bible. That stuff is good. Creation is good. Matter is good. And I think this is stressed so uh, profoundly throughout Scripture because in the ancient world this was not assumed. Many cultures in ancient times believed that creation was haphazard, scary, accidental, unpredictable, a little bit magic, not in a good way, in a bad way. Uh, one example is the most famous of Babylonians' uh, creation story called Enuma Elish, you can forget those words as soon as you hear them, but it was very well known, declared on New Year's Day in Babylon from ancient times, and it's basically a long poem about a war of the gods. And what do you think was the wreckage at the end of the war? Stuff. You. Me. The mountains, the rivers, that beautiful harbor. Just wreckage. And the message was pretty clear. This stuff is accidental. Watch out. It's capricious. And into this context comes the Bible in its opening paragraphs and says, no, no, everything is good. That's an epitome of Genesis chapter 1. And I know Genesis chapter 1 you know, got caught up in all sorts of modern debates, but often we miss one of the main points of Genesis 1. That stuff is good. I mean, the reason you know that that's one of the main points is because of the you know, really sophisticated literary technique of just saying it over and over. <laughs> so God makes the light, and it's good. God makes the seas, and they're good. God makes the vegetables, and they're good. And the moon, and they're good, 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 good. Seven times. In fact, the seventh time, just for the slow people in the ancient audience, it says it was very good. <laughs> right? Just in case you missed the first six. It's good. Because it's come from a father. It's not accidental. And this is worth stressing, not for ancient history reasons, but because modern atheism, interestingly, rivals Babylonian paganism with its low view of stuff. I don't think I'm being unfair in quoting the world's most famous atheist in a statement he's made, and many other statements like it, that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. 
into this context. Christianity, the Apostles' Creed, declares, I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Not only is God the source, he is the giver of a gift. And this changes everything about life. I mean, the good thing for our world, and I mean no disrespect towards um, atheists perhaps in the audience, but the good thing about the Western world is hardly anyone lives like they're atheists. I know there are you know, genuine atheists, but hardly anyone lives like there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. We all actually get along in life by ignoring that and living as if it is meaningful, as if, as if there is something special. But the thing is, the Apostles' Creed says you, you don't have to just pretend. That stuff is good. If I can illustrate it, um, think of my wedding ring. Now, my wife assures me there's some gold in it, and I'm just going to go with that. Uh, And I love it. It's nice and simple. I like simple. I like gold. Uh, And I could probably go down to a jeweler here in Charleston, and I would get, well, I'm not going to speculate. We'll get something for it, right? Not nothing. But is that the value of the ring to me? Of course not. Because this material object is overflowing with spiritual meaning. Because she gave this to me as she said, I, Elizabeth, in the presence of God, take you, John, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, and so on. And all of that is packed into this physical object. And and my point is, when you believe that God is the source of all things, that he is the Father who has gifted creation to us, all of life is brimming with significance. Nothing is mere matter and form. Everything comes from God. And I believe that changes how one lives in the world. I'd love to reflect on how that does change, how we think of morals, how we think of one another, and so on. But I don't have that kind of time tonight. But I do want to say, this therefore means there's a flip side. There's a flip side that is logical. And this flip side is worth knowing in order to understand the importance of the second stanza, which I'll get to in a moment, I promise. If all things are gifts, it means it is possible to offend the giver. And I point this out because there's a lot of confusion, at least where I come from, about what sin is. Aussies like to think of sin as the vices other people get up to. You know, it's those who drink too much, and after all, too much is so relative, uh, swear, have illicit sex, you know, the other people, the naughty, you know, the naughties. But actually, Christianity says, no, there's a far more profound way to think about sin, and it arises from this notion of God being the Father, the giver of all gifts, the source of creation, It means that if stuff is a gift, it's possible to misuse the gift and offend the giver. Surely the greatest sin is not the swearing and the getting drunk and all those sorts of things. It's agreeing there's more to life than material things and then settling for it all the same. It's admitting God's existence in the universe and then refusing his influence in my life. 
It's acknowledging that everything must originate from a divine source and then giving nothing back. No thanks. That would be the profound sin. And I'm not just speculating here. Because when Jesus gave a picture of a sinner in one of his parables, the famous parable of the prodigal son, how did he describe what was wrong with the son? Here it is. He told this parable, a hypothetical to illustrate his point, of two sons to a father. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth. Let's think about this. Jesus thought the sinner could be pictured as a child who wants everything the father has to offer and nothing to do with the father. Desiring the gifts, not the giver. I don't think I'm making that up. That's pretty much what Jesus said, right? And that is incredibly modern. Because Westerners, I won't say Americans, I'll say Australians especially, are world experts at pursuing the gifts and ignoring the giver of loving stuff, beaches and wine and cheese and sex and technology and houses and very rarely stopping to give thanks to the source of all things. We are world-class sinners. I'll leave it to you to work out whether Americans are anything like that at all. <laughs> we want the gifts of the Father and ignore the Father. And this is where the second stanza comes in. Because the second stanza is all about what God has done in the history of Jesus to bring back the prodigals. To bring back those who have offended the giver. And here is the second stanza. So not just, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, first stanza. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead, or in some older English translations, to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Now, what is the first thing you notice about the second stanza in comparison to the first? It's long. It is five times longer than the creation of the universe. <laughs> what is going on? Christians go on and on about Jesus Christ. And you can tell that the people who put this creed together wanted to drill down on Jesus Christ. And the reason for it is clear. In Christ's death and resurrection, God provides amnesty with a world that is the prodigal. God provides forgiveness. What is the center of the center? I mean, yes, there's loads about Jesus from his birth to his return, his return to judge the world. But what is the center of the center? I find this extraordinary. Three days. 
And in the original language, I've encountered the English, but in the original language, 20 words are used to describe just three days. Jesus, death, burial, resurrection. 20 words. But the creation of the universe is described in just 10. Now, I don't believe in doing theology by mere mathematics, but there's something going on here. Christians go on and on about Jesus, and they go on and on about his death and resurrection because it is in his death and resurrection that prodigals find forgiveness because Jesus died to take into himself our judgment that we might be forgiven. And the creed is just reflecting the New Testament at this point. Uh, Here is a statement that even secular scholars will say is the earliest datable uh, summary of the Christian faith. I mean, it's much earlier than the Apostles' Creed, which is a full uh, account of the Christian faith. This is in the New Testament, but scholars will agree that these words can be dated to within months of the events. And we hear this, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And then Paul cites this very early creed that we can date within months, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And if you're wondering what that photo is doing, that's my little white-gloved hands holding the oldest manuscript of this very passage uh, in the Chester Beatty Library in Dublin. What is of first importance to Christianity? It isn't that Jesus was a wonderful teacher, as much as I love Jesus' teaching. It isn't um, that he performed miracles, as much as I believe that. It is that he died and rose for our amnesty. The center of the center is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And actually, Jesus' parable of the prodigal actually makes this as the central point because this younger son, the sinner, comes back to the father and notice how Jesus tells the response of the father to the returning son. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Jesus' picture of God is a father. Jesus' picture of God is a running, embracing, kissing, forgiving, partying parent. And Jesus knew that better than anyone because he knew that within months of telling this famous parable, he would give his own life for this amnesty. Years ago, uh, Buff and I borrowed a DVD from a DVD store. Now, I need to pause here and just say, young ones, DVD is an old technology (laughs) that that we used to use in the olden days to, to watch films and the like, okay? So you'd actually walk into a store. It would take you 10 minutes to go up, get this physical device, come home, put it in, Okay. We borrowed one of these quaint DVDs. 
for our children. And uh, somehow, after they'd watched it, it, it slipped behind the television, and we just completely forgot about it for about three months. Now, in those olden days, young ones, uh, there used to be what were called extended viewing fees, fines for being late. You could only borrow it for like a week. And three months down the track, I hate to think what our extended viewing fees were. When we, when we discovered this naughty DVD behind the TV, we uh, had this ethical dilemma. Do we go up and pay the extended viewing fees, which are going to be like 10 times the value of this thing, or do we do nothing about it? Fortunately, I was saved from this tricky ethical decision because I kid you not, within a few days of the discovery of this DVD, we received in the mail a postcard from the video store, Blockbuster Video, and it said, we're wiping the slate clean. They had my attention. I grabbed this. I was thinking, this is freaky. We just found the DVD and now I turned it over and read the words at Blockbuster, we would like to welcome you back to our store. Simply bring this postcard into your local Blockbuster store and we will remove all extended viewing fees, no questions asked. Huh. So, I shot straight up to Blockbuster. Put this card in front of the sweet girl's face at the counter, gave the DVD and said, look, look, look head office. She... It, she gave a little bit of a smirk. It, it was not entirely non-judgmental, I must say, but she went into the John Dixon file on the computer, called up you know, our extended viewing fees, and inserted a zero. Huh. No questions asked. I turned around. Only as I'm leaving the store did I realize what a gift this is to someone who spends his time trying to explain the reality of the Christian faith. God is in the business of wiping the slate clean. And I was so excited about this, I rang Blockbuster head office. And I, the first person I spoke to was totally weirded out. I said, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a minister, I'm really interested in why you're doing this. And they were like, I'm putting you through to marketing. So they put me, <laughs> they put me through to marketing. And I said, I just want to know, I'm just so delighted, you know, th this, is, this is fantastic. And they said, oh yeah, we do it every year at Easter time. I was like, what? Easter time? She said, oh yeah, that's a you know, really good way to get people back in the store around, around Easter. I thanked her, I hung up, I thought, that is really strange. Either there is some Christian messing with people's head at the top of Blockbuster Video, <laughs> or, or they've just worked out that, you know, because there's a, there's a really good Easter holidays in Australia around Easter, so maybe they've worked out that's the time to do I don't know, but either way, it is gorgeous that Blockbuster was handing out forgiveness at exactly the time Christians were celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus for our forgiveness. God is in the business of wiping the slate clean, of inserting a zero, of forgiving and forgetting. I don't know how to interpret that, whether that means, okay, done, sit down, fantastic. <laughs> You're very sweet. Now, I was thinking of having a break and then a second talk about the same length. But I, I don't know, do you, do you feel like a break? Okay. Okay, let's just, 
I don't need a break. Do I look like I need a break? Ha! <laughs> All right. Before I move to the second stanza, there is a tiny little detail, uh, the third stanza rather, there's a tiny little detail in the second stanza that I just want us to notice. Not just that it focuses on the death and resurrection of Jesus as the means of our amnesty, but I want you to notice that right in the middle of the creed is a strange reminder of the historical nature of the Christian faith. Can you see it? Amidst the lofty themes of creation, amnesty, you get a reference to the pagan Roman governor of Judea. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Just pause and think about this. The universal summary of the Christian faith gets everyone saying the name of the Roman prefect who ruled Judea. I mean, the weird thing is, Pontius Pilate, who ruled Judea on behalf of Rome, is way more famous because of this creed than he ever would have been. No one would have heard of Pontius Pilate. And it's a governor we can pinpoint precisely to the years 26 to 36. That's when he was the governor of Judea. This is that 10-year period. Got plenty of extra-biblical material, and he very kindly left us an inscription to himself, uh, ostensibly in honor of the emperor Tiberius, but he names himself Pontius Pilatus, prefect of Judea. Why? Is there a figure from secular history at the center of the Christian faith? It's a reminder. Christianity is historical. It happened in a time and place we know rather a lot about. It really happened. This is not a myth from the indigenous dream time. It's not a legend from the Greek pantheon, it is history. Christianity is not based on some lone spiritual insight or a divine dictation in a holy book, but on public history when Pontius Pilate was governor. Let me try and illustrate um, this difference. I want you to imagine I uh, came here tonight with the claim that my great-great-grandmother appeared to me in a dream last night to reveal the truths of the spiritual life. And I would now like to share them with you. And then I proceeded to give a brilliant talk that moved you all, simply recounting the insights of my great-great-grandmother in my dream last night. Even if you found it moving, There is no way for you to test, A, whether I even had the dream, B, whether the content of the dream is real. Most religious claims are of that kind. Christianity is more like this. Imagine I came to you tonight with the claim that my great-great-grandmother 
appeared to hundreds of us down on the Broad Street of Charleston last night. The traffic, such as there was traffic, and tons of people came out of the shops and the bars and listened to my great-great-grandmother. The police were there and took reports. Now, even if you wouldn't be able to prove every detail of it, I've now made a verifiable claim. A claim that you can begin to test. Because it's not a claim that happened in my head. It's a claim about something that happened in time and space. You could look for news reports. You could find eyewitnesses. You could look at police reports and work out whether there's any chance of this being even remotely plausible. And even though that is a strange illustration, it illustrates the difference that Christianity is claiming. That this happened when Pontius Pilate was governor. This happened publicly in time and space and is to a degree testable. Not everything in Christianity can be verified, but it is clear that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus have been left to us in very plausible documents you can inspect and test against the historical background. This is not a story from Middle Earth. This is part of the history of the Middle East. But it's not just about history. I want to pivot to the third stanza. The third stanza is not just about history, but about the present and the future. The third stanza is all about the life of the Spirit. The way the creed functions is that the first stanza is about God the Father creating heaven and earth. Second stanza is all about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, coming into the world, dying and rising again. Uh, the third stanza is all about the Spirit. Yes, Christians believe in that funny thing called the Trinity. You, you ask Christians, is God three or is God one? And they say, yes. And I know that's puzzling, but it's clearly what the Scriptures teach, that God is himself, one God, in a three-person love relationship. Father, Son, Spirit. And the last stanza, those few lines, are all about the work of the Spirit now and in the future. I believe in the Holy Spirit, it begins. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. In other words, it begins with the Spirit's role in forming community. That's the first thing the Spirit does. He fashions the Holy Catholic Church, and the communion of saints. Uh, the heart of the Spirit's role now is to take ordinary people and somehow breathe life into them to form them into a community of love that in some pale way reflects God's own love. And that's what the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints uh, means. I should underline that Holy Catholic Church does not mean the Roman Catholic Church. And, it, and if there were a Roman Catholic priest here, they would agree. This doesn't refer to the Roman Catholic Church specifically. In fact, the word Catholic in Greek, katoholos, just means, according to the whole, the whole, the universal, right? That's what it means. I know I'm 
I know many of you know that, but those who see it for the first time might think, Catholic? I thought, that's the mob down the road. No. Catholic here is deliberately placed in the creed to mean the whole church. And, and the Apostles' Creed grew out of the Roman church, I should say, from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, right? But the Roman church itself said it's not the Roman Catholic church that everyone has to believe in. It's the Catholic church. It's the universal church. Because they knew that there were people over in Jerusalem and up in Syria who weren't part of the Roman church, and they are still part of the Catholic church. But the point is the Spirit creates a community called the church. And I know it is sometimes far from holy. But the Spirit is trying to turn people into the Holy Catholic Church. The communion of saints, that just means the togetherness, the partnership, the familyness, to invent a word, of all Christians. Because saints doesn't mean superhero Christians, it means ordinary Christians. Did you know that? In the New Testament, the ordinary word for Christian, Christian only appears twice in the whole New Testament, right? But the ordinary word for what we call Christian is saint. Holy one. Adios. Anyway, too much detail. It's not even in my notes. That's just for free tonight. <laughs> Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, it just means the whole collective, the communion. And here's my point. The Spirit is interested in taking ordinary, sometimes way too ordinary people and forming them into something special, something that is much more beautiful than the sum of the parts. Some of you perhaps bear the scars of the bad treatment of the church, the institution, or of individual Christians. And I reckon every Christian in the building would love to say to you, we are so sorry if that's your experience. Because what the Spirit is meant to be doing in us is forming us into a community of love that reflects the love of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. When this creed was composed, however, Christians were breathing the life of community into a Roman world laboring under the burden of inequality, and hierarchy, and violence, and bigotry. And one of the things ancient historians will underline is the enormous impact of Christianity in bringing into a Roman world, collapsing in on itself, communities of love that people flocked to. And you don't have to take my word for it. Here's Teresa Morgan, um, whom I quoted on Sunday's sermon, but in a documentary uh, from last year, uh, she was asked, what would you say is the single greatest contribution of Christianity to world history? This woman is one of the leading classicists in the world. Professor at Oxford, just been pinched by Yale University, because they can. And here's what she said. I think that insistence by Christianity that God is always loving and always trustworthy and always just. And because of that, Christians are called 
always to practice those same goods towards God and always to practice those same goods to one another. That is a very big change in thinking from the ethics of the Greek and Roman world where the gods may be just but may not, where the gods may love human beings but may not, where being merciful you know, might be the right thing on a certain day but might not, where loving your neighbour you know, might serve you but might not. The Christian insistence that if those things are good, they are good for everybody and they are always good. I think that was transformational for the Roman world and then for the Christian world and is perhaps the single greatest contribution of Christianity to public life. Christians might not be much on their own, but somehow the Spirit breathes life into them and Community and love is the result. And part of the reason for this uh, community is found in the fourth line, in the words, the forgiveness of sins. And you may look at that, especially if you're a long-term Christian, you've looked at the Apostles' Creed for many years, and you go, what's that line doing there, not in the second stanza? I believe in the Holy Spirit, Holy Catholic Church, Holy uh, Communion of Saints, forgiveness of sins. I thought that's the death and resurrection stuff. Yes, but there's a very good reason it's here. And there are all sorts of historical reasons why this line is here. I won't uh, bore you with. But actually, this is the perfect basis for communities of love. You think about it. Most communities that exist are based on bonds where you can be better or worse at a thing and have a higher status. Think of the communities, I don't know, uh, your golf club, your football, soccer team, um, frequent flyer programs, anyone? You're ranked. And, and, and therefore, some people are able to look down on you. And when you finally get enough points, oh, gloriously, I can now look down on them. <laughs> but the basis of Christian community is forgiveness of sins. And this changes everything. Because what it means is, if we're all sinners, no one gets to look down on anyone. Right? And, and if we're all freely forgiven... As the Christian gospel says, no one has bragging rights over another. I mean, perhaps your only bragging right is, look how much I was forgiven. Which is not really a great brag. <laughs> this changes everything. And, and I, I would honestly say that the degree to which the Spirit has convinced you of forgiveness of your sins will be the degree to which you're a contributing member to the community. Because you look at people that you would ordinarily in the world have nothing to do with, and you see them as a forgiven sinner just like you. And it's glorious. That's the Spirit's work now fashioning us into a community. But uh, let me end with something about the Spirit's work in the future. This creed 
doesn't avoid the issue of the afterlife. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins. But then it says, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's not Jesus' resurrection, by the way. That's, that was back in the second stanza. This is our resurrection. The Bible teaches that eternal life is somehow a resurrected, glorified body. The Spirit now takes sinful, ordinary people and makes them into a community, but the Spirit in the future will breathe life where there is death and animate people that they will live forever. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. Now, I don't mind admitting that I'm probably a little more death conscious than the average Australian. You'll probably find Australians don't think about death very much. And the joke in Australia is uh, that we think already we are living in heaven, so why do we have to think about heaven, right? I mean, it's a joke, but it's sort of partly true. That I, for you know, personal reasons, have, think a lot about death. And it's no doubt you know, part of what I've experienced in life. I lost my dad in a plane crash when I was nine. I lost two of my best friends uh, in close succession. One in a motorbike accident at 15. The other died in the math classroom in front of us all. Hole in the heart. I could go on, but that has given me a kind of hypersensitivity about death. And, and I'm willing to admit that's not entirely normal. You know, maybe I should go to counselling. But I tell you what's weirder, I tell you what's psychologically far more damaging is never thinking about death and the afterlife, which is what our Western culture is obsessed with. So much of the advertising and the life that's thrown in front of you and the life that we're pursuing is about negating the big statistic that we all face. And I'm willing to admit that uh, my overthinking about death is a little bit problematic. I, I think the underthinking about death is just tragicomical, actually. Tragicomical. Now, Christianity doesn't harp on about death and the afterlife. It doesn't harp on about it. It's got loads to say about living now and, and so on. But it does emphasize it and all brands of Christianity sign up to this. That there will be, after our death, a resurrection of the body and the offer of everlasting life. One of the great privileges of my ministry was meeting this man. James Garbett, a magistrate of the Court of New South Wales. So I, I guess that's a equivalent of a state uh, judge. And he turned up at my church one Sunday morning. And uh, our, our early morning service doesn't get that many people, so he stood out as being a visitor. And, uh, and of course, I went over and I, I introduced myself to him. And he said, hi, my name's James. I don't go to church, but I've just received a terrible cancer diagnosis. Then he started to justify his being at church. 
he, he basically started to say, oh, I know you'll be cynical about that. Guy gets cancer, thinks about God. I'm like, James, this is the business, right? I, I'm not cynical about your thinking about God. He said, you know, I've had this wonderful career in law, um, but, but this cancer di diagnosis has convinced me there are just two things that are really important. My family, and if there's a God, God. He said, I'd like to talk about it. Oh, I, absolutely. And so began lovely cups of tea I would have with him in the, in the afternoon uh, at his flat. He lived right near church. And, and we, it first just started intellectual. Okay? He was a great intellect. And he wanted to know all about Trinity and heaven and hell and historicity of Christianity. Oh, he went through all these topics. But he especially started to ask historical questions. We, we met many times over weeks because he still had pretty good external health for, for three months. And, and one day he, he said to me, it's really interesting, you and I are in similar business. He was referring to my sort of academic interest in ancient history. And he said, history is a lot like law. You've got to weigh testimony. You've got to assess testimony against the background of circumstances. And he said, it, it dawned on me, how many huge decisions I've made for other people's lives based on testimony, based on my assessing the testimony of various witnesses. And he said, history's like that too, isn't it? I said, absolutely. He read the Gospels. He really focused in on the Gospels. And he uh, one day said to me, the Gospels have the ring of good testimony. He said, I've been, I've been judging testimony for years. There's no way this is made up especially the resurrection narratives. He made a point of reading them over and over. Discerning circumstantial details, tensions in the narratives, similarities, correspondence, sources. Lovely conversations with this guy. And he eventually got to the point where he genuinely believed Jesus had to have been raised to life. That this is good testimony. He had many questions remaining, but he just decided that's the punchline, so I might as well just get that one right. And he genuinely believed that Jesus rose again, and that was his only hope beyond, beyond the grave. He declined. I visited him three days before he died. He was in a morphine stupor, but I, I visited him in the hospital. And I came into the room and I said, James, it's John. Would you like me to pray? And he shot his hand up through the sheets. And he grabbed my hand. And it was one of those moments, I'm sure Jeff's had these, where you just you don't, you don't even really know what to pray. You, you feel like a pastoral failure. Well, I just sort of bumbled something. And by the end of my prayer, he was back to sleep in his morphine stupor. And three days later, I got the call that he was gone. I believe more alive than any of us. The life everlasting. You know, his family asked me to lead the funeral the next week, which was quite something. Uh, the legal fraternity of Sydney turned up in my little church. It was so posh. And the other thing was, so many legal people wanted to give eulogies. 
Because, of course, they're all so good at talking, right? And, and here's a hot tip. Okay, I'm sure Jeff will endorse this. Six eulogies is too many. <laughs> All right, so, we, you know, the head of the law council, you know, other senior judges, you know, read out statements and, and uh, it, you know, it was fine. It was fine. But the interesting thing is, just about everyone said James Garbutt was a man of impeccable judgment. That was the recurring theme. I'm sitting there listening to them over and over going, Yes, J James was a man of impeccable judgment. So, of course, when I got to give my sermon, it was obvious what I had to say. You, you told me he's a man of impeccable judgment. Let me tell you about his final impeccable judgment. He read the resurrection narratives, and he said, there is no way this is made up. This is good testimony. That was a little bit of squirming. But also there was large appreciation because they revered this man. Jesus rose again and offers eternal resurrection to all. Christians have disagreed on loads of stuff through the centuries and Many of us are ashamed about how we've disagreed. But we've all agreed on this. 83 words all the brands sign off on about the reality of God, the history of Jesus, the life of the Spirit. God, the source of all things, which means life is brimming with significance. But it also means we have offended the giver of all good gifts. But thank God, in the history of Jesus, we have amnesty. God wipes the slate clean, forgives and forgets. And then in His grace, gives His Spirit to those who trust Him. And the Spirit animates us into a community of love. Frail, foibles, failing, but moving in the direction of love. And that spirit will animate us for eternity. That is the Christian faith.